Well, good morning. As you make your way in, if you can find a seat, we're going to go ahead and get started this morning. Uh, I am obviously not John Henderson. We're not in the heart of the Kings. Uh, we have a different Adult Bible Fellowship hour this morning. So we have a, a guest with us who is going to be preaching uh, God's Word uh, a bit later, obviously, in our, in our main gathering. But what I thought we would do this morning is just take some time, um, given sort of his interests and expertise and work in the convention and the rest, just to have a bit of a conversation with myself and our guest, Dr. Moeller, uh, just talk about areas of the Christian life, talk about areas of sort of some areas of current events, uh, and hopefully this time would be an encouragement and a blessing to you. It's largely just as a heads up going to be sort of a guided conversation this way, probably won't spend as much time opening up to questions. Um, so just a heads up there. Sometimes we take lots of questions from the floor. We'll probably do a bit less of that this time. Um, but let me open us in prayer and we'll go ahead and get started. Lord, we do pray and it is a pleasure to gather. It's a pleasure to come on a beautiful day like this uh, in the safety of a place like this where we can hear your word and, and we're not fearful for our lives. Lord, we pray that we would be grateful for that grace you have shown. Lord, we pray that as we think this morning and as we, we just talk about the Christian life and, and talk about what you're about as you work through your church and work in the kingdom of this world, Lord, we do pray that you'd grow us in, in an appreciation for the many good gifts you give and that you'd help us think well about what it means to live as Christians uh, in times like this. God, we do pray that you would guide us, that through your spirit we would not become overly fearful or anxious, and yet at the same time we would live wisely, salt and light in this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, maybe open, Dr. Muller, tell us a little bit about where you're from, about your childhood, about how you came to faith. Many of those here will know you more as a theologian, but they may not know some of what brought you to that point. Thank you, Brad. I uh, was born in 1959 in Lakeland, Florida. And uh, so end of the Eisenhower years. My children find that frightening, but it's true. And uh, Lakeland was kind of a part of the Deep South at that time. And Florida had a population of 4 million people back then, uh, rather than uh, over 20 million that it has now. Very different place. I grew up in a tall steeple Southern Baptist church. And uh, that means the big church with the big steeple. It wasn't called First Baptist Church, but it was the First Baptist Church. And uh, godly Christian parents, I was the oldest of four, and we were involved in everything. My father was uh, the deacon and um, training union director. My mother ran the nursery. Um, my dad was in the grocery business uh, for 43 years. My mom, stay-at-home mom and registered nurse. And uh, they raised me in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and we were just at church all the time. I figured out at some point I was in the church like 10 to 13 hours a week. Uh, my family was so deeply Southern Baptist that I was only allowed to be a Boy Scout if I were a member of the Boy Scout troop that was sponsored by the church, and if I were a royal ambassador, which was the boys' group for Southern Baptists, and it was the same boys meeting with the same leaders on two different nights wearing two different uniforms, basically. Uh, but uh, it was a wholesome, I, I can't describe what a wholesome experience it was. It was, uh, I was surrounded by godly people. I was surrounded by the teaching of the Bible. 
I was surrounded by people who loved me. So I was, uh, you know, we don't believe that uh, you can be nurtured into the faith the way the Protestant liberals do. But nurture is a big part of how little ones are brought to love God and then to trust Christ. And uh, when I was nine years old, I was uh, at vacation. I grew up in a culture in which you did not go as a child to vacation Bible school. You went to vacation Bible schools. And uh, so I went to every church's vacation Bible school. And it was at a little church with a very different preacher. My preacher was a Ph.D. from Southern Seminary. He had done the degree under A.T. Robertson. I mean, that's just Baptist royalty. Uh, but very tall steeple, big pipe organ, big church. I was at this little neighborhood church. It had a bivocational pastor, and he preached the gospel when I was nine. I heard it many times, but that day I understood horrifyingly, not just that I sinned, but that I am a sinner. And he proclaimed Christ. I didn't know anything to do but trust Christ. Uh, and so I really I professed faith in Christ. My pastor helped to explain it. I was baptized. And I really do believe that I was converted then. Now, of course, learned a whole lot after that. But that, that I don't think you can be converted until you know yourself to be a sinner and feel that horrifying reality that there's nothing we can do about it. And then it's grace. Christ that is the answer to that. And then I, I, I went through a normal adolescence with the normal huge questions my questions may have been a bit more intense than the normal Christian adolescent. Uh, Shocker. I tended to yeah. scare people to death. Yeah, yeah. And I wasn't getting much help. Mm. And um, thankfully, some wonderful, helpful Christians came into my life that have made a difference to this day. Mm. So many of us will know you as a theologian, teacher, and leader in the academy. Now, when I was growing up, I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to race cars. My parents tried to help me understand that most people don't do that for a living. I didn't grow up thinking, man, I want to be a seminary president. So how does that happen? Well, it happens because a board of trustees elects you president of an institution. That's the short answer. Uh, it's, not, it's not something I had volunteered for. I perceived a call to ministry because I had the, the deep crisis I had as a teenager was an apologetic crisis. It was a question of, I had huge questions. I need answers to these questions. The biggest questions of life. I can't live until I get answers to these questions. Um, is there a God? Is there a source of meaning? Is there an objective truth? How, how do we know God speaks? I mean, these are just massive questions. And uh, I, I, I went to older Christians most of whom were really sweet and unhelpful. You know, I had so many people who said, that's a very good question. Well, and uh, they didn't have a very good answer. But the Lord brought into my life a very good answer, of people with very good answers. Uh, and, and it was just God's providence. And I was introduced to, some of you know the name, people like Francis Schaeffer. Uh, and I, I got to meet him and, uh, and, and got to be around people like that that made a determinative difference in my life. And really, I knew then I was a theologian and, and called to ministry. I, I perceived it, and the church affirmed it. 
And so it was really a call to preach the word, a call to serve the church as a theologian and apologist. And so I didn't have a clue for many, many years that that would be a seminary president. And so I'm often asked, why are you a seminary president? I say, because the only thing, the only thing that justifies me being a theological seminary is I get to turn out preachers who are armed with truth to go out into churches. Uh, but I am more than, the most fundamentally, I'm a preacher of the word. So when you were getting an MDiv and then you did a PhD at Southern, were you expecting to go into the pastorate? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So then something happened. I was headed to a church in Tampa, Florida as pastor <laughs> uh, when Providence intervened for me to go to Georgia with the Christian Index for four years, and that set up me. We didn't know it. I mean, no one would have thought. They don't elect a president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary who's 33 years old. And I was 33 when I was elected. And that tells you there had to be some kind of crisis. Mm. And there was one. Mm. And they turned to me in the light of that crisis. So you mentioned some of these formative influences. You mentioned Francis Schaeffer in that season. Who have been some of the other formative influences in your life, whether or not they're dead or alive? Yeah, well, I'd say, I, I think biblically, I'm happy to say, I say, first, my parents. And then secondly, the pastors who taught me God's word and, uh, and others within the church who taught me. But then outside my church, and look, it was, it was the 70s, okay? So my youth pastor loved Jesus, didn't know much, really loved Jesus, really didn't know much. <laughs> and uh, so he really encouraged me in Christ. And so, but he really helped me. So one day he picked me up from school in this VW van which it was a different world. It was a world in which, as a 16-year-old, you didn't worry about getting in the van with your youth pastor and heading off anywhere. And so he took me to a neighboring church right down the street, and they had a brand-new student minister who had just graduated with a degree in apologetics. And he's the first person I talked to who said, that's a really good question. I thought, well, everybody tells me that. And then he said, here's how Christians have answered that question. I thought, okay, now this is good. Chapter 2 is great. <laughs> Uh, and he really helped me. The pastor of that church, some, some of you in the congregation know the name. His name was D. James Kennedy. He was a pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale. And uh, Mary ended up being valedictorian of his high school. Uh, put a little plug in there. And uh, I, Dr. Kennedy befriended me. And so here's the pastor of the biggest Presbyterian church in the country. And uh, who was himself very theological, very much an apologist. And he was, that church funded a great deal of the ministry of Francis Schaeffer. And so, at Libris. And so, you know, I walk in the office one day and, and I'm picking up a book from Dr. Kennedy. And he introduces me to this guy dressed in knickers. Uh, I had no idea who Francis Schaeffer was. And, um, but Dr. Schaeffer had a determinative impact on my life. Uh, first of all, through his writings, and then, yeah, a very compelling person. Didn't come to know him as friend, but I did get to meet him. But, uh, and, and I did get to hear him a lot teach. And so it was, it was, it was moments like that when you realize there, God has his people, and sometimes one of the greatest ministries you can do is connect God's people to God's people. One has need, one has help. That's a phenomenal thing. Praise God. So we'll know you as a writer, as a speaker, um, you know, obviously teacher and leader. Do you have hobbies? Like when you have spare time, if it exists, do you watch Sports Center? Never. CrossFit. 
Obviously. Yes, yes, okay. Yes. <laughs> so what do you do for your free time? What do you do for fun? Well, I really don't have much free time. And I don't mean that for you to sorry for me. I mean, it's just an all-compelling... And, and Mary will tell you, there's just... When, you do, when I do the briefing five days a week, I do all the rest of it. I'm, and the books... If you're writing a book, you're just never done. And especially when you've always got several you know, lined up and you're working on them, speaking... So you actually write your own books? I do write my okay, own books. Okay, okay. I teach my own classes. I'm teaching a class right now on the most dangerous ideas of the modern age, a college-level class for, uh, for Boys College, having a blast doing it. It's a ton of work, uh, not, not because I really have to kind of go figure out what I'm going to say, but I've got to pull from... I've got to distill a giant issue like Marxism into a three-hour class section. That's, that is a tremendous challenge. Uh, but I do have hobbies. I just don't get to do one of them very often. And uh, so I would say fishing... Oh, yes. so we have a lot of fishermen. We here. have a lake house, and so fishing. I have a fishing boat, and so we're there whenever the weather's warm and we can get away. So we're there the month of July, and every day I'm out on the water fishing. And many other times during the year, we can work it out. Oh. And but the main hobby are named uh, Benjamin and Henry and Mary Margaret. Now I know who they are. Yes. And if, the whole world should know who they yes, are. Yes, and if people who follow you on Instagram yes, will learn who they yes. are. But to those who don't know those three the names... The glorious hobby on planet Earth is grandparenting. And so Mary and I will basically drop anything, anytime, to FaceTime, not to mention being with them. And I think you were just with them recently. Um, was that last Sunday? Yeah, excuse me, yes, last Sunday we were there. <laughs> and uh, our son-in-law, Riley was until just a few weeks ago Deputy Assistant Secretary of State of the United States. And, uh, and he has the oddest promotion. He is now Associate Pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church um, in Washington and living in the house you and Aaron lived in and gave them marriage counseling in. That's true. Yeah, yeah. A lot I could say to that. I, I think, mean, I think I you mean, said it took. It, 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 they had three kids. Evidently it took. Yes, yeah. you were successful. Yes. You, actually, you actually filled the house you lived in with, uh, with, with their uh, marriage and what the Lord's blessed. Mm. But, I mean, you think about God's providence. I mean, how many places can this, how many ways can this work? Mm. You just have to, it makes a father's heart very, very happy. Mm. And my f- best friend, you know, from the time we were in seminary together, was Mark. We have a picture of Mark Dever holding Katie when she was just four months old. And then we got a picture of Mark with me, with Katie, with Mary Margaret now. Seven weeks old? Four. Don't. Oh, I it's need her fun. everywhere I go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> four weeks old, yeah. And, and wearing the same dress. And you think, how, how sweet is God just to be able to, we can just document God's grace and mercy in our lives. Mm. Praise God. That's awesome. So you mentioned, Mark, you mentioned the time yeah. at Southern. So many of us will have sort of theological transitions. Uh, right. Maybe I'll use a different, different word. Um, developments. Right. Uh, and that mutual friend was one time a raving Arminian who loved to mock Calvinist and then became a charismatic who taught people to speak in tongues. Yeah, I know. Before... He continued to read scriptures. Before the Damascus Road. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yes. And now he's not there anymore. Um, So have you had such, do you ever teach people to speak in tongues? Have you had such similar developments? 
No. My, I mean, my life is a little less dramatic in that sense. Uh, first of all, Mark was raised in an unchurched context, basically. And, I mean, he was sort of churched. Yeah. I was, like, deep-churched. Um, and, uh, and I didn't rebel at all against, I mean, because there were these, I just, I mean, the Christian answers to the question, I had atheist teachers in middle school and in high school, and they really, that was my apologetic crisis. And then I was in a program of special study in which, you know, it was a pot of three kids, and it was, it was three boys, and it was the son of the reform rabbi and a traditionalist Roman Catholic uh, with me. And so every day was an apologetic crisis. The reform rabbi, I went over to his house. He had a, we were just studying one day, and so I'm with his son, and so it's the Catholic and the Baptist and the rabbi's son in the rabbi's house. And that's when I discovered the rabbi didn't believe in God. He came out one day and he said, so you believe in, you believe Jonah was real? I said, yes, sir. Yes, rabbi. And uh, he said, how do you believe that? That's ridiculous. And I said, well, it's in the Bible. I said, you don't believe in that Jonah was real? No, I don't believe in God either. And I'm thinking, okay, this is below my categories of rabbi. Um, but Reform Judaism is like the ultra-liberal Judaism, and this is where he was. And, uh, so, but I have these huge questions. And uh, the, uh, the fact is that the only answers were those that were supplied by Orthodox Christianity. So it was Francis Schaeffer, Carl Henry, with people like that who just poured into my life. I went to Samford University. Mary and I actually are married because the Lord led us both to Samford. I ended up being her brother's roommate. And you must be okay if your roommate lets you marry a sister. I'll just say that. And, uh, and, and, it's, and at Samford, we met a soft theological liberalism. It was pietistic liberalism. Uh, so all the piety was there, but it was much more liberal theologically. I loved my teachers. Uh, I never abandoned any orthodox doctrine, but my theological mood kind of shifted with my teachers, you know. And then I went to Southern when it was in its very liberal phase, and I never became a liberal. But uh, there's only one major doctrine that I, I, I had to be corrected on, and that was the issue of women in ministry. And by the way, I really didn't wasn't excited about it. It just I never I never had a teacher who taught the biblical understanding of biblical manhood and womanhood until far later. And uh, so, no, I'm thankful I, d I never strayed from any orthodox doctrine, but I had to really change my understanding of the Southern Baptist Convention. That was, a, that was the huge transition. We were in the middle of a controversy, and it just had become very clear to me that the conservatives had to win. Or the you don't mean politically conservative. No, I mean theologically conservative. Although there, there are ties to it. You know, the, the, the issue in the SBC controversy that became transparent was abortion. And so that was not the beginning of it. That was not the main issue. But it, it became very clear that the same people who were basically for the inerrancy of Scripture were for the pro-life movement. And so it's one, of, this was, it's one of the things, you know, that in theology you have conceptual issues making something concrete like that issue had a huge impact on the SPC controversy. But no, it was the, it was the issues of the inerrancy of Scripture, uh, the, the reality of propositional truth, uh, the, the confessional 
obligation of the denomination to hold to specific truths in the confession of faith based on scripture. Uh, I had to come to the conclusion that not only they were right, but they, they had to win. And thanks be to God, they did. So you're also a voracious reader. Yes. Why does reading matter for Christians? In the history of the Christian church, and even before you look at Judaism, in the history of God's covenant people, you find a literary culture. Wherever you find the church strongest, you find the strongest literary culture. Paul doesn't say to Timothy, send me the CDs, and, or come over, let's have a good conversation. CDs, that, that's anachronistic, right? Yeah. Uh, he says, bring the books and the parchments. Um, the impulse of Christ's people should be to consult the books. First of all, Holy Scripture, more than anything else. Sola Scriptura. But after that, how in the world do you know anything? The fact is that books have been throughout human history. The development of, the, 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 the development of stable thought. Here's something you don't think about. How do we know what Christianity is? When we say that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're, we're told in Jude to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. How do we know what that is? We can't go out to the cemeteries and go back to millennium and keep asking dead people, okay, what is that faith once for all delivered to the saints? We have to go to the Holy Scripture, which doesn't change. And is the same Holy Scripture that uh, formed the apostolic church. And so that's why we, we this is why we're, we're a biblical people. That must be our instinct. And then throughout the Christian church and its history, there have been theological teachings and theological arguments. They come of necessity. Someone says something. Why do you have a theological argument? Because someone says something someone else thinks isn't right. That's why you have a theological yeah, argument. Heresy precedes orthodoxy. Exactly. Now, there's a sense in which, and, and you know, I've done so much writing defining heresy and what it means. We have to be careful to say the truth is there before the error. But orthodoxy, which means the church's responsibility to say this is the right doctrine, it comes after heresy where someone says something else. So the greatest theological turning point in the history of the Christian church after Christ and, uh, and the death of the apostles was in 325 uh, when the church had to have its first council to decide between two statements about Jesus. And thankfully, the church, led by Scripture, answered, got the right statement. And, uh, but it did so only because you had the Bible to which you could go. But right now, I mean, right now, we've got to go back to 325 to the Council of Nicaea because the Baptist faith and message, our own confession of faith, only has the right statement because it was made first in the fourth century. Your only access to that is books. And so, you know, my personal library is a little out of hand. Define out of hand, just so you know. My daughter works at Dixon Street Bookstore, um, and I think you made their month. This weekend. I think I pretty much made their month. Yeah, I think, I think you did. How many volumes do you own in your library? Somewhere around north of 60,000. Yeah, just spend a moment to get your head around 60,000. Love for you to come visit. It's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a working library. There are books all over the floor. So, so the funny thing is you don't realize this. You, you left the bookstore, and all the folks that work with Paige just turned around and said, 
who was that? Who owns over 60,000 books? It's larger than most university libraries. It's now 60,000 and however many are in the suburban from Dixon Street books. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> I think he rated all of the theological section. I think the, the greatest moment, though, was you think you purchased some books on, on London, on tours through London. Yeah. And so one of them looked and said, well, I thought he was a theologian, but apparently you give tours around I'm England. I'm a theologian. Mary and I take people... I mean, one of my, my, London's my favorite city in the world. So you don't and, do Israel tours, you do London tours. Well, I would do Israel under certain circumstances, <laughs> but no, I want to show people more than anything. I'm very, you know... Wednesday, You're an Anglophile. I'm an Anglophile. One, I want to show people the development of English-speaking culture. I want to take people... I, and look, I take people, for instance, I was giving a, a lecture on Constantine, the, the emperor of Rome, and we're in York, which has a nearly intact medieval city. We're able to talk about the entire history of medieval Christianity, the Reformation, Puritanism, and all this. And we're standing there, and I said, you, we are standing right now on the spot when the teenage Constantine receives word that his father is dead and he is now emperor of Rome. And we are standing on the very spot. We know we are because beyond that's a cliff. So, you know, <laughs> things move but not cliffs, you know. And so... He was looking out at the North Sea when he discovered he had just become, and of course that meant for months he'd been Emperor of Rome but didn't know it. Um, and you look at that and you go, there's, there's history. And so, but London, so yesterday I was able to buy a 1736 edition of Daniel Defoe's uh, London. Not related to William Defoe. Huh? Not related to William Defoe. Who's that? No, sorry. <laughs> no, Daniel Defoe. Those who know English literature, I wish I had it with me. It is one of the most beautiful books you would ever see. Right down here at right. Dixon Street. Right. Can we get that? You want me to sure. Can you Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so, in your own life, what books have been most instructive, influential yeah. for you? Just yeah. maybe, I'm sure you could name many, 68,000 perhaps. Right. Uh, yeah, so. And I'm, I'm reading just all the time. I read somewhere around seven to ten books a week just because I have to. Define read. I read. And I, I, I read with a red flare pen in my hand. I read every word. And I make, unless it is a valuable work, like there's not going to be red flare in Daniel Defoe's 1736 uh, but like I'm, I'm reading a, a book on intellectual development in the 50s. And so it will, there'll be lots of red on every page. I use my own diacritical marks. But I can go back to a book I read when I was 17 and find exactly what I'm looking for. I was teaching uh, the first class of my most dangerous ideas of the modern age. So I got a bunch of 18-year-olds in the class, 18, 19, 20 undergraduates. And... Uh, I picked up a copy of Russell Kirk's Ideas Have Consequences, which was fun to teach from in this. And uh, it was the one I read when I was in the first year in college, and it had it at number 274. So it's the 274th book I bought with my own money as a teenager. And I could open that book, and I showed them. I said, I read that book when I was 17 or 18 years old. That is a long time ago. I can pick that book out of my library right now and turn to the exact page, and there's the mark I made for the paragraph I was looking for when I was 17. 
I find that one of the God's great assists to me. When I'm writing a book and I need something, I can go back and find in that book when I read it, and I date when I read it. So, so I, I, mean, I can always go back and say, okay, I read that book mm. in this date. I write the place where I read it. And I don't know, that just helps me a whole lot. And the rest of us are mortals. The, the books are a conversation. Rightly understood, the reading of a book is a conversation with a, an author. Yeah. And so I have those conversations, and without that, I couldn't do what I do. Well, I think you and Spurgeon have that in common. I think whether or not it's, it's true, I know it's professed that you know, someone could pull a book off his shelf and start to read a paragraph from it, and he could often finish the paragraph for them. So, unique memories. So he's saying, this is the way they used to make books. Wow. And you'll be using your red pen, you said, on that one. No, no, you won't be doing that. And you found that at the Dixon Street Bookstore. Yes, so it's not there anymore. Don't look. It's not there, he says. <laughs> That's wonderful. Uh, the Lord's been very gracious. I, uh, if you come in my library, I can show you a first printing of the Texas Receptus, 1750. Explain to the, folks what that is. The Texas Receptus is the first printed Greek New Testament. Um, and uh, I'm able to show the Geneva Bible. I'm, I'm able to show the Great Bible. Uh, that, uh, and, and the Great Bible is sitting in a case under an oral portrait of Edward VI, the boy king of, Israel, of uh, England. Um, the son of Henry VIII, who became king, didn't live. He died, you know, by the time he was about 15. But when he's a 13, 14-year-old boy and the king of England, he's writing to John Calvin saying, Sir, how may I reform my church? And uh, anyway, one of the ways that Calvin incurs him is by the English translation of Scripture. So there are very few copies of the Great Bible because he was succeeded by his Catholic sister who made it a capital crime to own one of these Bibles. So there aren't very many. But I just love showing students this, saying people died for being found with this Bible in their home. Um, that's how important the Word of God is. Half-sister Mary? Bloody Mary? Is that your Bloody Mary, half-sister. Yeah. 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 Uh, and then she was followed by Elizabeth. Right. As the, England, the English people will say, she was followed by Elizabeth, thanks be to God. Well, so, you know, we're going to be, the call to worship is, um, was it Psalm 119? Um, here, let me just pull it up. No, is it one twenty-four? One eighteen. I was off oh, the chapter. I'm like one eighteen. Yes. So, from the sermon, the stone the builders have rejected has become their stone cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Does that, why would that quote be significant in this conversation? Because of Elizabeth's, thank you, because of Elizabeth's enthronement and the language in which uh, the fact that the English people had been rescued and the, the gospel had been rescued. And so thus, this is marvelous in our eyes. Yeah. The story I heard was that mm -hmm. upon hearing of Bloody Mary's death, yes. that was her immediate response. <laughs> 
Yes, that's why I'm saying thanks be to God. Was when you know, if you're around Jewish people, they often say things where you know they they, they end a sentence and they say another thing. Catholics will often do this, and the English people, it's whenever you get to Bloody Mary, followed by Elizabeth the first. Thanks be to God. Um, <laughs> marvelous in our yes, and that was the response of the pure the of the the Protestants, mm. as you're pointing to Psalm 118, because mm. they uh, they thought in such biblical terms. Mm. Let's, let's jump to more current times. Um, what has the pandemic taught you as a Christian? You know, just to cut to the quick, there's so many things that connected. The one thing it's taught us is that we deeply need to be together as God's people. And that any interruption in that uh, should make us yearn for it. And uh, so... The, the main thing I think most of us have felt is disconnection. And I mean, that's true for families, it's true for friends, but for the church, we've learned how unhealthy that is. Mm. So the Christian who's tempted today to turn on the news and they, you know, they have one news station on and they're dissatisfied and they flip to another one and they're dissatisfied. And it feels like it's a lot of gloom and doom. It's a lot of shouting and yelling. Uh, and then they look at, you know, restrictions on religious freedom, and they just feel every day like the world is caving in. And then they listen to the briefing, and you affirm them. (laughs) What do you have to say to them? So, last night, late, I was reading, and again, this is going back to the 1950s, in the United States, major intellectual change in the United States. And so the liberals in 1958 were accusing the conservatives of being fascists and describing Dwight Eisenhower as a fascist. You look at that and you think, well, things of Italy don't change. Um, and this contest of ideas has always been going on. And it is because in the modern age, there is the sense that everything valuable to us can be lost in a hurry. And so just as an historian, i got to say, that part of this is explainable. If you live during the medieval period, in the Middle Ages, you have the union of faith and reason, you have the union of throne and altar, everything is unitary. Change, I mean, that's why you call them the Middle Ages. It's a millennium in which there is very little change. The modern age is the age of change, and we're now in a hyper-modern age, and so we can have marriage mean one thing, for thousands of years, the entirety of human experience, and then the Supreme Court can redefine it, and, and then in an instant, it's something else. That, has, that is fundamentally new in human history. And so if you believe in fixed categories, as Christians do, and not just about marriage, but about the cosmos, then we understand that we are not winning in the culture because conservatives never win in a modern age. We just don't. We, we win some victories, but we don't win because the modern age itself is set against the idea that there are any fixed truths. So Christians have been biblically minded and have been cultural pessimists for 2,000 years with brief moments of stupid cultural positivity and optimism. So you're not a post-millennialist. You bet I'm not a post-millennialist. 
Now, what Brad's talking about is that, that the post-millennialists, uh, especially in the 19th and early 20th centuries, believed they were bringing in the kingdom of God and that America and Western civilization was becoming the kingdom of God. And, of course, the death of post-millennialism, which should have been the Bible, was uh, actually World War I, which was just the great refutation. Evidently, we're not bringing in the kingdom. The most horrifying things that took place and then the 20th century. And, but, but this is, so, you know, after the, the most important theologian in the history of the Christian church, after the Bible, is Augustine, um, and, uh, who was in the 4th and 5th centuries. And uh, he was writing at the time Rome was falling. And uh, he wrote his great book, The City of God, to help the church understand why the fall of Rome did not mean the fall of Christianity. And uh, that's kind of what we have to talk about today, why the fall. And look, Augustine was right about Rome. You know, battles happen and the dust clears and everything's different, but not everything's different all at once. What we are facing in our country is the acceleration of what's happening. And so religious liberty, for instance, is by the elites in our society dismissed as something we now can't afford in the name of their version of moral progress. And so we're, so th there is a, a change happening fast. Um, but, you know, Christians, we have to be the people who know we actually can survive this. We're not, we're not saying civilization can survive this. But the church, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so this is where we lean into the permanent things and then try to be a conserving element in the society because we believe it's important for human good. And that's where so often the New Testament helps us. Because our experience is increasingly looking more like their experience. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. you look at uh, uh, Peter writing to the exiles, and you realize we used to read that part of the Bible as if evidently there were some Christians to whom that applied. Well, it increasingly clearly applies to us. If you're talking to, and you and I both have many friends who are pastors in Europe, they are really aware of the fact they are not in control of the culture. And, uh, you know, I'm here in Fayetteville, Arkansas. There still is a Bible Belt. There still is a difference whether you live in Arkansas or Oregon. But the national policy is going to be the same in Arkansas and in Oregon. And uh, the Bible Belt is not the protection that a lot of Southern evangelical Christians thought it was. Yeah, that belt's getting tighter. Yeah. yeah. And look, there's still resistance you know, there's still resistance. I mean, you consider what your state government did in the last few days. There is still resistance. Mm -hmm. uh, but that resistance doesn't reset to a previous norm. See, that's the problem. That's where conservatives misread things. We're Christian conservatives. And I mean conservative here in the sense of Christians seeking to conserve the truth and what God has given us as, as gift. Uh, your state legislature didn't end the transgender confusion. It did not return to a status quo ante. It did put a significant break on loss and confusion for some time. Yeah, perhaps it's a speed bump. Perhaps. I'm speaking encouragingly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so 
I think we found as elders increasingly the importance in times like this for sort of theological triage. So understanding the difference between first order issues, second order issues, third order issues, those issues that ought to divide us, those issues as Christians, non-Christians, those issues that ought to divide us in fellowship of similar churches, so Bible-believing churches, but maybe on these second-order issues, we have to separate, but we still have first-order issues in common, or third-order issues, you know, which shouldn't arguably define and dissolve within fellowship. Do you want to just maybe speak to that a little bit? Because you've written a lot early on about the importance of theological triage. I coined, I I coined the term. Okay, well, there it is. Because your mom was a nurse? Yes. Yes, my mom uh, was a stay-at-home mom until my last little brother went to college, and then she went back to nursing. Because nurses talk about triage all the time. Well, I didn't know that (laughs) until my mother became a triage nurse. And uh, it made a lot of sense. And here I am as a theologian, I'm facing this. And look, the Christian churches had different ways of dealing with this. Uh, But basically, and uh, I'm going to Indianapolis tomorrow. Uh, the Gospel Coalition, and we have an entire session on theological triage that I'm participating in. And um, I, wrote the, I wrote the article years ago, A Call for Theological Triage, which kind of started this conversation in recent times because like the, a denomination like the Southern Baptist Convention, okay, we have a confession of faith. Do we put everything we think about everything in the confession of faith? Are we saying that people who don't agree with us in this entire confession of faith aren't Christians? So the idea here is there are certain doctrines that are central and essential to the Christian faith without which you cannot be a Christian. If you believe less than this, you're not a Christian. And, you know, the Christian church has worked through that pretty consistently. I think it's even in the New Testament. You know, clearly you're looking at the fact this is the body. You, 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says, you know, received as of first importance, Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. God raised him from the dead according to the Scripture. And, and Paul says, if, if we've trusted in Christ, hoped in Christ for this life only, or of all people must be pitied. If Christ is not bodily raised from the dead, then our sins are still upon us. Okay, so if you don't believe the bodily resurrection of Christ, you're not a Christian. If you don't believe in the Trinity, you're not a Christian, the doctrine of the Trinity, because you're denying the full uh, true deity of the Father or the Son uh, or the Holy Spirit. And so... You know, there are, different, there are different doctrines. You realize, okay, if, if, I'm, if I'm talking to someone who denies the Trinity, she's not a Christian. Someone who denies the, uh, the body resurrection of Jesus from the dead, not a Christian. That's helpful. But then I'm with Lake Duncan, who's one of my dearest friends. Who's he, preached here. My first had. Sunday here, he preached here. Well, there you go. Yeah. And then the people wondered why I was getting in the pulpit. You wouldn't have had him if you thought he wasn't a Christian. Okay, Lake Duncan is a very prominent Presbyterian. And again, the Lord brought into my life an extremely prominent Presbyterian who helped me a whole lot. But you know what? He did not make me a Presbyterian. Well, in the second London... Put down that baby. (laughs) Excuse me. (laughs) Well, in the second London confession is so similar. Basically, it's a ripped off Westminster. Right. I often say to this congregation that Presbyterians are like our closest cousins. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I tell, uh, you know, I, I was writing for a Catholic audience last year when I said, to understand Baptist, you understand this. The Reformers said that the Catholic Church weren't biblical enough. Okay? In the English Reformation, 
the, uh, the Puritan said that, the, that Calvin and Luther weren't biblical enough. Then out of the Puritans, the separatists said the Puritans aren't biblical enough because they're staying in the Church of England. And out of the separatists, the Baptists said to the Presbyterians, you're not biblical enough because you put water on babies. And so basically that's how Baptists got here. And, um, but that's a second-order issue. So in other words, you had Lee Duncan in the pulpit. Lee Duncan preaches the gospel so beautifully. People have come to a saving knowledge of Christ through the preaching of the word by Presbyterians. I learned personal evangelism from Jim Kennedy, by the way, in Evangelism it's, Explosion. Yeah, that's about the same. Yeah. Um, but, again, we're not, I'm, this is not a Presbyterian church. It's a Baptist church mm-hmm. because we believe the Presbyterians did not take the logic or exegesis of Scripture far enough when it came to the baptism of believers only upon personal profession of faith in Christ. So, in other words, we do not anathematize um, gospel-believing Orthodox Presbyterians, but we don't join their churches either. And uh, so that's a second-order issue. So the first-order issue, if you disagree with me, you're not a Christian. Second order, if you disagree with me, you're not a Baptist. Or we can't be in fellowship in a local church together. Right, or denomination. Yeah. You know, it's not the Southern, it's not the Southern Evangelical Convention. It's the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, we, want, we want our seminaries to teach Baptist doctrine. We want our missionaries to take uh, conversionism, the gospel. We want them to establish churches in which baptism is rightly ordered. But then there are third-order issues in which you can have a disagreement inside University Baptist Church, and it should not threaten this, this fellowship. The class, the, what I do with, uh, and, and this is going to, just don't, don't worry about this, and don't keep thinking about this during the, the sermon. But when I'm teaching systematic theology and I'm telling students this is a third-order issue, I tell them the most classic third-order issue in the history of Christianity is the origin of the soul. Does that make sense to you? Not immediately. Where does the soul come from? The Christian church has had two different answers. So, in other words, you have a baby. Just saw a beautiful baby up here a minute ago. When was that baby ensouled? Where did that soul come from? Okay? Because with human reproduction, we have some idea, pretty good idea, of how the baby comes about physically. But where does the soul come in? By the way, we believe the soul comes in at fertilization of the egg. That's the essence of why Christians should hold to a pro-life position because we believe there is no, there is no later ensoulment. Mm-hmm. But where did this all come from? So the Christian church has, has been theologically divided over this. You didn't know it. You've been a pastor. How incompetent is that? Um, so, oh, they know it would not be the first time. No. It would not be the first time. <laughs> Most Christians don't have any idea that this is even a theological question. But if you're a theologian, you've got to answer this question. The Christian church has answered two ways. Number one is what's called creationism. It has nothing to do with the creation of the world. It means that God separately creates a soul at the moment of fertilization. The other position is actually the majority position, um, which comes down to the argument that the soul is passed through seminal transmission. It is Adam's soul. God created Adam's soul. He gave him Genesis 1, Genesis 2. He gave him breath. And that is transmitted as is sin through Adam and Adam's seed. And so, anyway, that's called Traducianism. You did not even know this was a raging controversy. You know what? 
you can have a church filled with people who hear this and go, I think creation it makes more sense. Other people say traditionism makes, makes more sense. It doesn't divide the church. There's no creed that says you must believe this about the origin of the soul. There's no denomination I know in the history of Christianity that has taken a position on this. Is it important? Yeah. And I'll tell you why I'm introducing this. It's important because I think it is very helpful that that is never separated from Adam. Because it's really important in the whole meta-narrative of Scripture that we are all of Adam's seed. Adam is our federal head. As in sin, as Christ is our federal head in salvation. The second Adam. I'm not preaching on that anymore. But I hope that makes the it point. Makes, yeah, you can so, have. I mean, you, so your view of the end times, second order, third order? Well, both. Okay, he bodily is raised. He's bodily returning, gloriously and visibly. Second order, in terms of timing. First order, in terms of truth. Third order, in terms of details. Okay. So okay. if you deny that if this you, is you like deny, if you deny that Christ is gloriously physically returning to claim his church and to establish his kingdom, I don't think you're a Christian. Yeah, first order issue. Yeah. Okay. okay. Because that's 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 a part of the doctrine of the person and work of Christ in the Bible. So otherwise otherwise what where does the where does the gospel end? Is there a little thousand years? I believe so. Yes, that's a second order issue. Second order issue. Yeah. Okay. Um and the third order issue would be, I believe, the raptures. And I remember Hal Lindsey saying in 1972, it didn't happen. Um, in other words, there are all kinds of eschatological things, which Jesus told us we aren't going to know clearly about until they happen. Mm. What would be some third order, in your assessment, uh-huh. what would be some third order things that are wrongly dividing? I either we're elevating them to second order things. Can you think of anything just maybe in, even in this current cultural climate well i would say in the history of uh, evangelical christianity in the united states it has been eschatological issues uh, that have taken on status outside their proportion we have churches where you know um i know of a church when i was a teenager where you couldn't teach sunday school unless you agreed with the pastor on the timing of the rapture that's what happens here all the time I don't think most people know. I'll just say what my grandmother would say when she didn't have anything else to say, which was, bless your heart. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Okay, Uh, so... Yeah, that's another issue. Uh, But uh, in in evangelicalism, other issues have been, for instance, um, the legalism of fundamentalism in saying, you know, this is the prescribed skirt length. You know, or churches splitting over mixed bathing. I know this is this is fun. It scared me to death too. I can remember when I was a teenager and I heard that we were with the church and they said they don't believe in mixed bathing of boys and girls. And I'm thinking, well, I don't either. What in the world are you talking about? But it was the English word bathing, which meant swimming, and it meant that at camp boys and girls could not swim together because that was called mixed bathing which again I think has changed the vocabulary <laughs> um, but I mean there, there were churches that split over this question as to whether you know boys and girls could swim in a swimming pool together and you know what that's, that's not a stupid issue should vaccines 
Well, the question between a first and second and third order issue is, would Christians committed to Christ and to the authority of Scripture say that for the entire history of the Christian church, until Jesus comes, that should be the right answer? Okay? That should tell us that evidently it can't be a first order issue. Does that make sense? That makes sense. So the second order issue would be, would we constitute our church or denomination on this position? I can't imagine we would. I don't know of any denomination in the history of Christianity that has. This is not the first time we've dealt with the vaccine question. Evangelicals have traditionally been pro-vaccine because of the creation mandate. But that doesn't mean that every vaccine in every circumstance has any moral consensus. Mm-hmm. So it has to be a third-order issue. I think anyone who would make it a second-order issue is saying, I can only have fellowship with Christians who agree with me on this. And uh, I wouldn't say that. Mm. So as you look, we're a Southern Baptist church. You lead a Southern Baptist institution. As you look out over Southern Baptist life, what discourages you and what encourages you? What discourages me is that uh, it's hard to do this with the, with, I only have one hand. So assume this, the table's my other hand. We're, we're, we're living here and an awful lot of our conversations going on here. You know, uh, what do we do? What school choices do we make? How do we raise our children? Uh, what, what do we do? What buildings do we build as a church? You know, uh, the, the, we're, we're living up here. Well, the tectonic plates of the society are changing under us very fast. And, and so I, I think a lot of the discussions we're having up here, which we have to have because this is where we live. We're raising kids. We're making decisions. We're leading institutions. We, we, we've got to be aware that a lot of that can become instantly relativized by the tectonic plates of the society shifting under us. The tectonic plates of our society are shifting in ways that are, I think, very ominous. And so I think that's, the, that's what discourages me. Because I find Southern Baptists often having conversations up here when I want to say, look, 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 <laughs> look at what's happening there. How are we going to have grandchildren who have faith? Um, but what encourages me is liberal Christianity is an increasingly empty neighborhood of vacated buildings. And um, God's not finished with his church. I look at this. Look, Southern Seminary, we've been flying the flag as brightly of conviction as I know on all these doctrines, on all these moral issues. We don't hide anything. You know, I'm doing the briefing every day. Uh, you know, I, I'm, on, I'm in the media all the time. We're not hiding. And, uh, and we'll have nearly 6,000 students this year. When that just confounds like the secular media, they go, you guys are extremists, you hold all these positions, nobody stands with you. Well, come to our campus, all the students are here, they're not where you go. Now, I think I was once told it's the largest Masters of Divinity program in the world. In the history of the Christian church. Oh, history of the Christian church. Yeah, and look, right. that's, that's the Lord's doing, so be encouraged. Don't do, I, I'm, I'm proud of that for Southern, yes. But, but be proud of that for all six of your seminaries that are training pastors. And be, be proud of the fact that God's raising up a generation of young men who intend to preach the word. Mm. And who know 
it's not going to be popular because by the time you become a 22-year-old who's graduated from college and shown up at seminary, you have figured out this is not a way to cultural fandom. Almost all the young men who show up to be pastors, who show up at Southern Seminary, have lost friends because of their faith in Christ. They've already learned that you lose social capital, but they love the church. They love the church. You know, I explain this. You say, you got, if you had an 18-year-old young man who shows up, sold out so much that he's crossed the country. Jono Berlini, intern from Santa Cruz, California. Who's Almost from Santa Cruz. San Jose. San somewhere in California. <laughs> Everything in California is a San something. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, all the way across the country. Why? God's calling out preachers. And that, that you want, you're going to be excited. All I have to do is look out the window of my office on the second floor in Norton Hall and look out on the lawn of that beautiful camp and see it filled with students going back and forth and professors. All I have to do is teach a class. And of course, we have college, which I'm very proud, 18 to 22-year-olds. Uh, but just before leaving on this trip, and I mean just before as in everybody's waiting on me to finish teaching this class, I taught the first three-hour lecture of this class I'm teaching at Boyce on the most dangerous ideas in the modern age. And I'm looking out at these 18, 19-year-olds just staring back at me with these big eyes, taking notes because they know this is going to matter for their lives. And I think, you know, who, who wouldn't trade, who would trade anything for this? You know, why would I do anything else? I just want to encourage you. The Lord's sending them. They're coming. And by the way, so our, I'm back to family privilege here. But uh, we just saw a mom up here with a two-year-old and baby in a stroller. Uh, just last Sunday, Mary and I are walking with our son and son-in-law and daughter and two grandsons and a little baby. And we're walking in front of the Capitol and the Supreme Court. We live right there on Capitol Hill. And I said, you know what? This is an act of civil disobedience. To a society that's losing its mind, you just look at these two little blonde boys and this, uh, and, and, and this little baby girl uh, being carried you know, in her mother's arms and you walk in front of the Capitol and go, this is more important. This is, this is what makes civilization right here. Uh, and so you look, I say, so also you look on our campus or you look in our churches, you look in this church right here and you see, you got a nursery because you need one. God bless you. We walked down a hallway to get here. There are all these little, like, uh, f three feet off the floor. There are all these little pegs for little coats. How glorious is that? This is a Christian instinct. Christian instinct through times, whether it's the dark ages or pestilence or plague, has been if God's giving us children, then we have a future. We just say they're going to pay our Social Security. It's not insignificant. No, okay, okay. <laughs> Good. Let's put it this way. If we don't have children, the entire civilization crumbles. Malcolm Muggeridge, if you listen to me or listen to me right, uh, or let's read, listen to me right, that may be happening too. Uh, you know, I often quote Malcolm Muggeridge, the British journalist in the 20th century, who said that the whole birth control movement, I'm here to debate the whole thing, 
written about it, you can find it. But the whole effort to limit the population and worry about population growth and all this, he, he called it the great liberal death wish. And I think that's what it is, the great liberal death wish. I just want to hold a picture of my grandchildren and say, to all the people my age who don't have it, go encourage this. Tell your children, get married and have these. Does that make sense? <laughs> I think so. Want to talk about yoga next? Oh, gosh. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm not going to talk about yoga. I landed, we're we're going to uh, close with yoga and masks and no, I, return I, I, uh, I, I wrote a big piece on yoga. I was on, I think, the Larry King show. I did that show about 45 times. And it was on yoga. And I went to speak to a big Baptist convention in Texas. And I got off the plane. And this is, this is back in a different era. And all these TV cameras are facing someone coming off this plane. I'm going, some poor sucker is going to have a bad night. <laughs> <laughs> and then they called out my name. <laughs> and I realized, and I thought, oh, they're going to, something, something big in the culture has happened. Something, yep. There's something, I mean, president died or something. And, I, and I, I went over and said, what's happened? And they said, the Alabama legislature is arguing the issue of yoga and your argument. Why do you believe this? And it was just, I realized, you know, so I could talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is why I'd gone to speak at that convention. No women, no TV cameras. But add the word yoga. And look what happens. Look what happens. Yeah. Well, on that fun note... I am going to, uh, I'm going to close us in prayer because I want to give us time for uh, the service before we go. I believe we now have a hospitality table. Is that right? Is Bear here? Is Bear working? Oh, there's Bear. Bear, who, uh, you, so we do have coffee this week. So we have coffee. So those of you who, who need it, I think Bear learned on the women's retreat that they gathered actually to drink coffee uh, right around study the Bible. I think we had about five gallons of coffee drunk or something to that effect. So I know you're all loving Common grace. Common grace. Common God grace. loves us. Gave yes. us coffee. And Diet Coke. God loves us and God gave us the means to develop Diet Coke. Yes. <laughs> uh, if you happen to own um, a book... Uh, that uh, either Al or Mary, his lovely wife, who just taught uh, wonderfully the women's retreat, if you have one of their books and you would like him to sign it, he'll be down here maybe. You got a minute sure. or two to sign, sign a few books. Um, and uh, I'm going to close some prayer. And Can we'll I say one thing? Oh, yeah, go ahead. No, I just want to tell you how encouraged I am this morning to be with you. And I'm sorry, I can't get all the way back here. But it's wonderful to see so many people here this morning. Uh, I'll say something in the service, but uh, you know, I was here and got to preach as a part of the dedication process for this building when it was new. And to look back and see what the Lord's done, this is just very encouraging. So thank you for encouraging me today. Yeah, praise God. I was going to mention that. I don't know if you all know. He, I think you and Governor Huckabee at the time, and it's quite a crew. We had us a time. As my grandmother would also say, we had us a time. We had us a time. We had us a time. <laughs> yeah, so this is a homecoming of sorts. Yes. So... All right, let me close this in prayer. God, we are grateful for, yeah, we're grateful for in your grace, uh, the men and women you raise up to uniquely shape your church. We think of how even you've used Mary wonderfully in Al's life, uh, how she has helped him not just know how many weeks 
uh, grandchild is or what names he may have forgotten, but the way in which he has been a source of encouragement and strength and a, just even a stabilizing presence in his own life. Lord, we give you praise for the way in which you've used Dr. Muller to encourage us, uh, to remind us of how uh, the Bible and scripture and theology affects everyday life, how it instructs us how to think about everyday life, the things we're coming in contact with, the, the worldviews that confront us. Lord, we're grateful for uh, the clear voice of his that can help us work through times like this and the chance we get to hear God's word uh, from one of your servants. We know at the end of the day, there is no authority greater than the word. We are all servants of that word. We minister under that word. We minister that word to your people. And God, we pray in just a few minutes as we think more about that and as we worship around your word, that you would build it into us. And Lord, we do have every reason, as he was even talking about, to be happy. And to one of the figures... Uh, Dr. Muller loves his, his uh, R.C. Sproul and just his joy, his own happiness. Lord, that ought to mark us as we gather as your people. So, Lord, we pray that that joy in Christ of a, a kingdom that awaits, that is not fading, uh, Lord, that will conquer and will be glorious. That is the kingdom, if we're in Christ, that we belong to. It gives us every reason for confidence and hope today. Lord, we pray that that would even mark us as we gather and worship. In Jesus' name, amen.